Are you ready to fly to Europe yet? It's not at full capacity. It's not uncrowded. Places aren't empty, but they're not as busy as they would have been in 2019. Coming up, one of my main writers and researchers at Rick Steves Europe shares what it was like to visit Central Europe just a few weeks ago. Cameron Hewitt tells us how they're dealing with the pandemic and what he had to do to be a welcome visitor again. It's very encouraging to me, the the direction that Europe is heading in. Widespread testing and visitor quarantines have kept South Korea's COVID death count relatively low. When you're ready, Cheney Kwok recommends a three-day itinerary for visiting Seoul. It's a thriving, even throbbing metropolis of almost 10 million people. And tour operator Steve Perillo tells us why he's eager to revisit his family's roots in southern Italy near Naples. The limoncello, the mozzarella, the mozzarella is beyond belief. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves' Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com. Revisiting family connections in Italy and Korea are on tap today on Travel with Rick Steves. Writer Cheney Kwok has tips for enjoying the heart of South Korea, contrasting its hyper-modern capital with old-style tranquility on Jeju Island, Korea's answer to Hawaii. And we'll discuss what it's like to travel to Europe as a tourist at this stage of the pandemic. That's in just a bit. Let's start the hour with a return visit from tour operator Steve Perillo of Perillo Tours. We checked in with Steve at his home in Saddle River, New Jersey. At the end of the Second World War, Steve Perillo's grandfather had $300 and a dream to start a storefront family business in the Little Italy section of the Bronx, and his father turned Perillo Tours into one of the largest tour operators taking Americans to Italy. Today, Steve Perillo is the CEO of Perillo Tours, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us more about his family's connection to Italy and how they keep the connection strong on both sides of the Atlantic. Steve, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. So give me a, just a little thumbnail sketch of your family's story with your business. It's just, I, I just, I love this thought of right after World War II, a lot of Italians in New York City longing to get home and, and some entrepreneur organized tours so they could do that in an efficient way. Tell us the story of Perillo Tours. A lot of companies were founded in May of 1945. You know, Hitler did himself in uh, April 28th, something like that. And right out of the box, May 1st, he got uh, the first uh, papers to start a travel company, insurance company. Uh, my grandfather uh, was the head of the student body of Naples Law School, and uh, he came over in the mid-20s. The economy was terrible in Italy. And uh, he brought the family over in the 30s. He worked at a bank, and then he started his own thing. And they were uh, steamship tickets back to uh, the homeland, also, if people had land, he would help arrange for uh, selling the land in Italy. We have a sign on our front in the Bronx. It said, flour, $15. And you could send flour uh, to cook with uh, from the States to uh, Italy. And he uh, expedited that. Is that because of the difficulty, the hard economic times back then? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, brutal after the war. 
And were they doing tours, or was it just setting up the uh, the steamship trip to uh, to uh, Italy? Uh, yeah, it was the uh, the steamship uh, ticket. It was the hotels and uh, some sightseeing, but uh, it was a lot of independent stuff when uh, when you got there. So back then, tell me what. Just kind of walk me through a tour. I, let's say I'm, I've got plenty of money and I've, I've got Italian heritage, and I'm in New York, and it's 1949. Uh, what would my tour be like? Uh, you would get a uh, transatlantic crossing. You'd be uh, second class, third class, uh, first class. It would take uh, seven or eight days to cross. You'd arrive in Naples. You'd be picked up uh, by a bus where you'd uh, usually go to Rome and uh, stay at a hotel for uh, four or five nights, go to the Vatican, the usual sightseeing, the Colosseum. And we would do what we uh, did today. You'd go to Florence and uh, Venice. It was a really special experience, once-in-a-lifetime experience hmm. until the jet age. Uh, for and, and how were these folks. tours set up? Do people, because um, there was no faxes, obviously, no internet. Was it just by telephone, or did you send letters and have to wait for a week? Yeah, there was airmail. Uh, I'm not sure, Rick, when the telex machine came in. It was no. around then. Uh, we still have that machine, and you'd type your message in. But it took uh, weeks to get a hotel quote. It really, really was a very long, uh, arduous process. Man, is it fast today. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Well, I, I remember when I started, my, when I was first doing my tours, there was no internet. And uh, I had to spend entire nights from Seattle on the phone. I would just, from midnight to 8 a.m., I'd be working because that'd be the work day in Europe. And I would just be talking to people on the phone. It was expensive, but at least I could call. Uh, and, get and then the, the fax, machine, uh, fax, the fax machine, machine that come was in radical. 1980 or... Yeah. Yeah, And then just a couple of years ago, we decided to take all fax numbers out of our guidebooks. That was a big step because <laughs> now it's, uh, those are kind of a dinosaur. So we all evolved. But when you look back to the, the your, your father, uh, was that Mario? He was a, yes. a pioneer in the tour package. What did he innovate? What, what was new about tourism that he Yeah, it's a little tricky. Uh, the airline business, you know this better than I does, was uh, totally regulated by the U.S. government as an official uh, you know, service for uh, transportation. So it was uh, regulated. They set the prices. They set the rules. So for some reason, in 1974, you couldn't put a group together with an airline ticket and a land tour until deregulation happened under uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, before that, you could uh, have a air and land tour if you had a club called an affinity club. This is uh, like a stamp collecting uh, club. Okay. So we had everyone sign up for this fake uh, stamp collecting club so you could be part of the club and you can get a special deal with air and land. And finally, it became uh, legal to do that. Uh, the airline business became deregulated, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, because I remember in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, I traveled with my family on affinity clubs, a German club or the Norwegian club. I guess that was just a way to get around that, wasn't it? Exactly. Huh. Uh, so my father was there at that moment, and it took off with these three 747s a week chartered. Pan Am 747s full because it was nine ninety nine for two weeks air and land, hmm. and uh, that's how uh, uh, my father was, was a smart guy. But that was really a lucky uh, place to be. You know, the right person, right place, right time. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Steve Perillo, and Steve's the CEO of Perillo Tours. Before the pandemic shutdowns, they were one of the largest tour operators to Italy from the United States, and his family has been in the travel business for more than seventy five years. Their website is perillotours.com.
Well, this is so much fun to be able to talk to you because your family has been into this Italy, and Italy is my favorite country in Europe, and it's the it's, it's the most popular country in Europe, I think, for at least the people that I I work with, and uh, it's certainly our best selling, you know our most popular TV shows and our best-selling guidebooks and all that sort of thing. Let me just quiz you in a sort of a lightning round here because we only have a couple of minutes. But I'm going to lift up an itinerary challenge for a tour operator like you in Italy, and I'd like you to just give me a very quick and candid response. Uh, how do you best experience the hill towns of Italy? Uh, you mean those uh, cobblestone uh, hill towns you see in the distance in Umbria and yeah, Tuscany, Tuscany right? and Umbria, exactly. Well, we have lunch there. It's usually a, a stop uh, between uh, Rome and Florence, Florence and Venice. We're going to stop there uh, at around noon. We're going to walk around. But We're going to have what a is the hill lunch. town? What's a good hill town to hit? Would you say uh, San Gimignano, the one with the towers? I think that's yeah, the one with San the towers. Uh, Luca. Luca. Oh my God, these are. Uh, so heady, and you have some white wine at lunch, and it's just magical on the cobblestone streets. These towns, you want just want to move in, and you can buy them, you know, for one euro, but you have to uh, sign up for uh, millions in renovation. Oh, that's right. They've got but, these programs to try to save some of these depopulated hill towns. How about the Riviera? When you've got customers that want to go to Italy and get a dose of the Riviera, what's the dose that you would serve them? Three nights. Do you mean uh, up north? Like, no, just uh, one, by, one uh, little bit of Italian beach. Where would you? What would you work into the itinerary? Positano. I mean, Positano is the greatest little beach town in the world. So that's on the Amalfi Coast. That's the Amalfi Coast about an hour south of Naples, right? Right, right. And Portofino is the sister one up north. Yeah. These are, and, you know, there's a legend in our business, Rick, that uh, you discovered uh, the Cinque Terre. I don't know if this is true. But you're to blame for the uh, the over-tourism in Cinque Terre. Is it true that you invented Cinque Terre? <laughs> well, I was been there for a thousand years, but I uh, popularized it with Americans. I think I could I could take the, the credit or the sure. blame and for that. Uh, thank but, you. Thank you. That's an amazing place. You could go on for it forever. Oh, I sure. love the Cinque Terre, but it's popular with Genoans. You know, the big city of Genoa is just an hour yeah, or so away. Yeah, and now... Yeah. Unfortunately, it's uh, it's also on the in the crosshairs of the tourist cruise industry because cruise ships now oh boy. now the cruise ships oh stop boy. in La Spezia because it's cheaper for them to moor there than in Livorno, yeah. and uh, that means a lot of them take that Riviera trip. Steve Perillo heads his family business, Perillo Tours, which specializes in tours of Italy. His company's website is perillotours.com. Hey, do you find that your uh, travelers enjoy Naples, or is it too intense for them? No, it's too intense uh, still. Then they had the garbage issue a couple of years ago. Right. Uh, but we want, we've been going to Sorrento as a replacement for years. But I love Naples. It's authentic. You see the, the yeah. laundry and the, still the laundry. I'm with you. My mark of a, it's, you know, my mark of a good traveler is if they can enjoy Naples. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a rich brew, but it's Italy in the extreme. I do stay in Sorrento also, and I find of all the places in Europe, I can spend more nights with a tour group in Sorrento, I think, than anywhere, even on a kind of a blitz tour, because from a home base in Sorrento, that's a the Lemoncello kind of resort town of the Amalfi area, you can side trip for a day to Naples without having to spend the night there. You can go out to the island of Capri, and you can do the Amalfi Coast and stop at Positano and always come back to Sorrento, which is a beautiful, a beautiful base. What about the south of Italy? I have a tough time getting excited about Campania and Calabria. What's your take on that? Uh, yeah. 
Calabria is just, they're still not ready for tourism. They still don't have the infrastructure. It's a regular, beautiful European area. Uh, Sicily, I, I consider just a normal place. Uh, you know, you're comparing it against Rome, Florence, and Venice and uh, the north, which is ridiculously uh, I exceptional. agree. Sicily holds its own against anything. Sicily is, if you love Italy and you wish there was more of Italy and you haven't been to Sicily yet, that's your answer. Steve Perillo, CEO of Perillo Tours, it's been fun talking with you. I wish we had more time to talk, but I'd like to just close that, you know, you and I both love Italy. And I'd like to know, where do you find yourself saying, what is the Italian phrase, la vita bella, uh, life is beautiful? It's uh, around the Naples area. That's where my family's from, San Giuseppe Vesuviano, this little town. Uh, when, the, when that uh, volcano goes again, you know, it's going to be gone in 10 minutes. But that area is just uh, the limoncello, the mozzarella. The mozzarella is oh. beyond belief. You know, they... It's got to be three hours old. Or it's too old. It was, it's just so soft. Oh, mozzarella. The pasta. Oh, my. Mozzarella, oh, mozzarella. And, and the limoncello. And the thought that Vesuvius is going to blow, we should get over there right away. <laughs> 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 There's something about mozzarella just before the volcano goes. It makes it even more delectable, I think. That's <sighs> what they did in Pompeii, I guess. Oh, right yeah. Well, you get your fried mozzarella, I guess. So that was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Steve Perillo, thank you so much, and best wishes with your, your touring. We know that we're going to get through this uh, this pandemic, and when we do, Italy will be waiting for us, okay? So, bon, thank you, Rick. Um, bon lavoro. We'll look at what it's like to visit Europe at this stage of the pandemic in just a bit. But first, travel writer Cheney Kwok shares what he likes best about visiting his own family origins in South Korea, with a mix of big city excitement and old-style relaxation. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. If Korean-American travel writer Cheney Kwok had one week to spend in South Korea, he'd start with three days in the capital of Seoul, where the bright lights and modern skyline and hip shopping and nonstop delicious foods are legendary. But he'd spend most of his time two hours away in a more traditional area few foreigners know about. The mystical island of Jeju is the complete opposite of Seoul. Even the Korean dialect they speak there is closer to the languages of centuries past. Jeju is where shamans bless the villagers every spring and where women, free-form divers, go deep every day to bring up the freshest of seafood. Cheney joins us now to see Seoul in three busy days and then share what it's like to meet the women of Jeju, eat their fresh seafood, and enjoy the soul of Korea. Cheney, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rick. Uh, Cheney, first of all, you're, uh, I understand, first-generation American. How did your family end up in the United States? You know, a funny story is that my uncle, who uh, landed in Washington, D.C. in the 60s, thought Washington, D.C. must be the capital, the greatest city. Something traumatic happened. He wouldn't talk about it, but he wanted to get away as far from Washington, D.C. as possible. He looked at the map, said Seattle. And uh, he took the bus across, and then he started bringing his family over. So huh. okay. all the quacks in Washington State were used to be related to each other up until the late 90s. Now, is your family, does it have a relationship with the old country? Did you go back there as a child? And uh, how well connected are you with the, the relatives back in Korea? Absolutely. Uh, every few years, I try to make it back to Korea. It's been a couple of years now because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But uh, my mother's side of the family is all in Korea as well, outside of Seoul. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm really familiar with Seoul and also have this great personal connection. My mom 
uh, was born in Seoul, which is uh, <laughs> something she's proud of. And uh, yeah. Give us an introduction to Seoul, first of all. How would you describe Seoul to somebody who's maybe been to Tokyo? Yeah, it's a controversial take, but I want to say that actually you should start your first Asian trip in Seoul. Because, for one, it's a great gateway with lots of connections to all around the world, but it's also not a tourist trap. It's a thriving, even throbbing metropolis of almost 10 million people, and you really get a slice of real life, uh, what it's like to live in a very hyper-modern Asian country. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to say it's a terrific place to be jet-lagged because it's a 24-hour kind of city. So if you want to get a perm or eat a meal or what have you, go for clothing shopping at 3 a.m., it's not a problem. Oh, yeah. I saw you did the 36 hours in Seoul thing for the New York Times, and uh, it was the, the photograph there. It just looks like bright daylight in the middle of the night with all of the neons going on. I'm just going to list a couple of points, and I'd like to get your take on it because we have these clichetic images of Seoul. First of all, the pop industry. I mean, you know, Korean pop is, is actually a, it's an economic initiative by the government to be the trendsetters in popular culture. What's the scene in Seoul? You know, it's not quite like the music videos per se, but the fashion does change really fast, as do all the slang words, and you really hear that soundtrack of K-pop wherever you go. Mm -hmm. Well, talk about, and you know, we all know Gangnam, and uh, it's, it's a place. Seoul's divided into two, generally, by uh, the river that flows and bisects it. So Gangnam just means south of the river. Mm. That's the place with more money because it was developed in the 80s, leading up to the 1988 Seoul Olympics. Used to be a, a more agricultural, but now it's, uh, it's a lot of skyscrapers and uh, new money. And Gangnam Style is kind of a parody of that kind of gaudiness of new money. Oh, so it's uh, a parody on Nouveau Riche. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, right. that, that explains something for me, and it sounds um, almost related to my next question. I understand there's a kind of tourism there called beauty tourism. <laughs> I've been, I wish I could partake in that. I, uh, Korea is known for its plastic surgery skills and industry, shall we say. So there are a lot of uh, tourists from all around Asia who come aspiring for that kind of K-pop, K-drama standard of beauty. Uh, Cheney, I was in Singapore and I was in Shanghai and I was blown away by the futuristic shopping. And I have a sense that Seoul can compete with these cities. Like, you've got the biggest subterranean mall in all of Asia, a thousand shops. Uh, talk about the futuristic shopping. Well, the subterranean mall happens to be in Gangnam, our favorite place. Mm -hmm. And it is true, there are a lot of shopping malls, uh, glitzy and whatnot, but I tell tourists going to Korea to experience Dongdaemun, which is used to be a wholesaler market. And this is the place where you can go at 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning to check out the latest fashion that's about to take over uh, the K-pop aesthetics. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as Namdaemun, which is the South Gate, literally in Korean, uh, where you can sample a lot of street food and get a pair of glasses done in an hour. I think there are a lot of remnants of old Korea in Seoul as well. So even though there are a lot of shopping malls, you can still find alleyways where people are selling dried vegetables. And uh, one of the more off-the-beaten path places I would recommend would be Gyeongdong Market. There's mm -hmm. an alley that sells medicinal herbs only. 
uh, quite an experience to walk down and just smell the pungent uh, ginseng and different kinds of medicinal herbs. Travel writer Cheney Kwok is recommending his favorite highlights for visiting South Korea right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His website is CheneyKwok.com. That's spelled K-W-A-K. You can listen to an earlier conversation we had with Cheney about the cruise ship nightmare he survived off the stormy coast of Arctic Norway. His book about the ordeal is called The Passenger. We have a link to the show archives from June 2021 at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I was going to ask you just from a practical point of view, what about the language barrier for somebody like me who doesn't speak a word of Korean? And uh, what are the costs compared to the United States? And uh, are there day tours that can give you a a good bearing uh, for Seoul? Yeah, so Incheon International Airport actually arranges day tours if you just happen to be transiting for a day. Uh, for free, I believe, actually. I'm going to have to fact check that. Uh-huh. But So if you happen to be passing through, you can actually get in a bus uh, arranged by the Korean government to take a look at nice. uh, Seoul. As far as the language is concerned, it is true. Unlike Singapore, English is not the official language. Korean is. Uh, the good news is that Seoul, um, young people will speak English and also street signs are going to be in English as well. But I like to tell people to learn how to read Korean when they go to Seoul because mm-hmm. it is a completely phonetic script. And I have a friend who learned to read and write during his flight over to Korea. It's an extremely logical and easy script to learn. And you'll be surprised how much you can actually read because even though Korean is a very different language, a lot of words come from English now. So you'll be walking down the street Ah, and you'll see a road sign and realize, oh, it says massage. Give us a quick tip on eating. I mean, I'm sure we're going to check out pork belly barbecue and kimchi. What should be on our list for enjoying the cuisine of Korea? I would say you should go out to the sidewalk tent eateries, a lot of street food in the afternoon as well as throughout the night. And you're going to find all sorts of different things. Dakboki, which is really spicy rice cake, is a staple, uh, as well as gilgari toast, which means uh, street toast. Uh, it's a sandwich of all sorts of yummy things made right in front of you on a griddle, right on the, on the street. Mm. That sounds like fun. Just street food and pop-up tents. Bottles and bottles of soju uh, shared with your friends. That's just the norm. And uh, there's a culture of counting the rounds that you do. Not as in, in one place, mind you. When you say ita, that means the first round in one place. You go to ita, samcha. You keep adding different pit stops inevitably ending up in a karaoke bar. If, if I went to Korea as somebody who's obviously a, <laughs> not, not Korean, and I had a spirit of adventure and I took my nap in the afternoon, I could go out at night and uh, make some friends and go to a series of little pop-up tent bars and uh, share buying rounds for everybody and have a fun evening? For sure. I would start in Itaewon, which has a lot of foreigners, and then you can venture out from there. I love Itaewon, actually, because mm-hmm. it's the truly multicultural part of Seoul where you you would see a mosque next to a gay bar. Uh, it's the only place in Korea, in fact, that you would see that. A lot of the establishments cater to uh, American English teachers and soldiers who are stationed there. So you can get your bearings there and then start expanding. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cheney Kwok, and Cheney is the author of a book called The Passenger, which talks about an adventure he had on a cruise ship that nearly sank up in Norway. And right now, we're joining Cheney and talking about his uh, family's homeland, Korea. And Cheney, if I had three days 
in Seoul, before we get out into the countryside, because I want to go there in a moment, give me just a quick look. We've talked about a lot of general things, but how would you be glad that you had three days in the big city of Korea, Seoul? Yeah, first night, jet-lagged, go to Dongdaemun, go to wholesalers' uh, fashion market, and then eat a lot of street food. Second night, Itaewon, uh, lots of expats as well as uh, diverse kinds of people. And I would also make sure to spend some time during the day in uh, Gangbuk, north of the river, where all old houses are still in existence next to skyscrapers. There's a place called Bukchon, which has traditional Korean homes uh, just cascading down a hill. And from there, you can see the rising skyscrapers. It's quite an experience. Mm. And if I can recommend a couple of off-the-beaten-path places, a Korean furniture museum, which is a private museum uh, inside a traditional house, has exquisite, exquisite collections of traditional furniture, and they do tours in English. In fact, you have to make an appointment uh, mm. to go there. And then there's also a place called a Korean Stone Art Museum, uh, all about uh, art sculptures made out of stone. But it's interesting because the name in Korean is not exactly Korean Stone Art Museum. It is Uri Yetdol Bakmurgan, which means our old stone museum, literally. And I think there's something kind of poetic about that, mm-hmm. that kind of <laughs> old stone and celebrating that. Uh, in a city, hypermodern city like Seoul, I yeah. think you need a stop like that. Let's say we've done Seoul, and just this conversation makes me want to go to Seoul for the first time in my life. i got to be honest. I want to check this out. But you balance it with a trip to the countryside, and uh, you've got this one favorite place. It's just a couple hours away, uh, an island the size of Maui with about only 700,000 people in it, and it's called Jeju. Why would you go to Jeju? What's there? You know, the one word that Koreans would associate with Jeju would be pure, Uh, Its water is renowned, and it's just a very different place than Seoul, even though it's only about 300 miles south. By no means is it a secret, because a lot of Koreans will have gone there, if not would aspire to go there, because it it is beautiful. Canola Mm -hmm. flowers fluttering in the air, and Mm. uh, there's this dramatic volcano that's been dormant for thousands of years. But more than the natural beauty, I think it's, it's a really intriguing place. The island of Jeju likes to pride itself uh, as uh, the island of 180,000 gods. There's a lot of shamanism or remnants of shamanism, whether it's in the form of shrines or in the form of gud, which is a ceremony that a shaman would perform in order to ward off evil and make offerings. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to see one of those, and it's, it's quite a, an interesting uh, experience to see someone going to trance and walk on uh, sharp blades, mm. uh, sharp enough to cut silk, but then they would dance on this uh, two, two propped-up blades. You mentioned there's a kind of a culture of artists that are escaping the urban intensity and setting up galleries in Jeju. That's the modern spin of it. So these days, a lot of people burnt out in Seoul would uh, mm-hmm. flee down there and either open a pension or coffee shop or just dedicate their lives to painting. And there are a lot of galleries that have opened up, as well as actually quite a prestigious gallery called Arario, 
which uh, <laughs> took up actually a couple of old rundown motels and turned them into this really incredible contemporary art experiences. Nice. Now, I was going to ask you about the seafood in this island, Jeju, J-E-J-U. But I think before you talk about the seafood, you've got to talk about this unique tradition of women deep divers. Tell us about that. Yeah, they're called henyo, which literally means sea women. These are women free divers who would go down there to collect mollusks and seaweed like kelp, you know, sea cucumbers, abalone, all sorts of things. You know, in 1965, there were over 23,000 henyo, which would make them about one in five women in the province at the time. Today, the total population has doubled, and there are fewer than 4,000 active henyo. 90% of them are actually over the age of 60. So it is kind of a dying art. Are they, are they diving um, without a scuba tank? They're just holding their breath? They're just holding their breath. And in fact, in, into the 70s, they were wearing nothing but cotton. So they didn't even have neosprene to mm-hmm. shield them. I, you know, I asked one of them, isn't that kind of, you know, silly? Why don't you wear an oxygen tank, mm-hmm. you know? And she said, are you crazy? What would my grandchildren eat? I could clean out the whole island in a day. Ah, so that's it. They thought it's just more sporty if they don't have the advantage of a scuba tank. It's also an interest in sustainability. Yes, you know, that's a beautiful sensibility. That is a beautiful sensibility. And this survives to this day. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's also incredible to see women in their 70s, even 80s. Some of them can't really walk. And then all of a sudden, they dive and they can move like mermaids because they're so much more used to working undersea. It is a really rough profession. And, you know, unfortunately, many of them develop diseases later on, but when it comes to diving, they seem to do it just fine well into their 80s. Huh. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cheney Kwok, a fascinating discussion about Korea. You know, Cheney, if you're on this amazing island of Jeju, describe a, a memorable meal you had there. I, I hope it features a little seafood after these women are diving so deep to get it. Absolutely. And this reinforces my argument that you should learn to read Korean, because I saw a sign that said, Hanyo Shikdang, which literally just means a restaurant run by a sea woman, went in there and uh, an ex-diver was making meals made out of uh, all the goodies that her colleagues had collected that day. Uh, Really spicy stew of all sorts of seafood and abalone just shucked and uh, fresh enough that even though, oh, I feel bad, it's dead, it's sort of kind of moving. Uh, (laughs) Sort of. If it's moving, it's moving. It's not sort of kind of moving. (laughs) <laughs> it is pulsating. I'm sorry oh, to Pulsating. Say. That makes it even more appetizing. Well, you got to do what you got to do. When in Rome. When in Rome. When on Jeju. Okay, so you had fresh seafood. Let's put it that way. Yeah, there Sounds you go. amazing. Hey, Janie Kwok, this has been a fun, fun exploration. Thanks for sharing. And uh, let's just, uh, final thought. If I go to Korea for the first time in my life, what's a tangible souvenir I might want to bring home? And what's an intangible souvenir that you think would be good for me to take home as well? Well, the tangible souvenir, I would say, uh, face masks, uh, all sorts of skin creams, uh, cosmetic products. And the intangible souvenir I could recommend would be going to Jeju and just being really quiet and listening for some dolphin-like sounds. It's called sumbi, and it's the sound that the sea women make as they emerge into the water and they exhale the last bit of breath. It's the most incredible sound uh, you'll hear. 
That is a beautiful moment. Cheney Kwok, thank you so much for sharing uh, your family's homeland and uh, best wishes with your travel writing. Thank you, Rick. There's more of Cheney's writing at CheneyKwok.com. What does it take to fly overseas conveniently at this stage in the pandemic? While the news about infection rates keeps changing from country to country, many places are starting to figure out how to begin opening up again for inbound tourism. My staff and I are starting to test the waters to see what it's like to fly overseas again. We'll share our experiences and what you'll probably have to do for now to visit. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I finally went to Europe and came home through the pandemic. And I've got lots of good friends and great travel writer friends and guides that are doing the same thing. I don't think Europe's wide open for travel right now. But if you know how and if you're willing to go through the hoops and be well organized, of course it's reasonable. There's thousands of people in Europe right now having a great time. But a lot of us were confused or anxious about just what it takes. My right-hand man here at work, the guy who co-authors so many of my books, just got back from about a month in Europe. And Cameron Hewitt joins us right now to get us up to date on what's going on for European travel if you're an American concerned about all the bureaucracy and hoops you got to go through to travel during this pandemic. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. And it is great to see you in person. And both of us recently returned from Europe, finally. And having had good trips. And, and having had great trips. Yeah. And healthy. So I'm just, this is the first time I've had a chance actually to sit down with you and debrief you. And I thought I'd bring all my friends along from public radio. Absolutely. Where were you? Uh, I spent about four weeks, a week in Slovenia, a little over two weeks in Italy, and then I was in uh, Berlin and Prague each for a few days. Slovenia, Italy, Berlin, and Prague. <laughs> Sounds like a good trip. I was just in France, hiking up in the Alps, and in Paris. So between us, we've been in a lot of Europe in, in, in recent weeks. What was your anxiety before you went? What was going through your mind? And how did it pan out? I like to think of myself as a hardy, independent traveler, but I got to say it was it was pretty scary, pretty nerve-wracking planning a trip. Around the time Europe started letting Americans back in in June, my wife and I began planning a trip. And uh, over the course of the summer, we thought things might become more clear, more confident, and it, kind of the opposite happened with the Delta surge in the U.S. And so by the week before we left, which is in late August, we were nervous. I mean, right up until a couple days before, we were wondering if we should actually go. You know, we were seeing a lot of headlines because the EU was having conversations just then about what to do with Americans with our, you know, increasing caseloads in the U.S. And there was even headlines about there might be a travel ban, you know, non-essential travel might be halted. So we were quite nervous. But the thing is, the reality is we read carefully all these articles. We read beyond the headlines. We understood that, no, they're really talking about unvaccinated American travelers. We are fully vaccinated. And we said, let's take a chance. And sure enough, a couple of days after we got there, when the, the new information came out, it was very specifically targeted to unvaccinated Americans. And we felt very welcome and comfortable there. And Cameron, I went through the same anxiety. I just think people are inclined to look at the media, which is inclined to make it a little more exciting than it needs to be. And sure, I think we have to be responsible. We have to err on the side of safety and health and so on. But we need to understand the media, understand how social media heightens the anxiety and, you know, many times I just thought people say it's tough. They were saying you couldn't get into the Louvre. Well, this is secondhand information. I thought, I'm going to go to Paris and talk to the hotelier. The hotelier knows it's filled with tourists that want to go to the Louvre, exactly what goes on. I'll talk to the hotelier about how do you get to Charles de Gaulle and then onto your airplane to come back to the United States. And sure enough, all of the anxiety-stirring non-information floating around was replaced by very calm, 
you know, experience-based advice from my hotelier who said, you got to get a negative test. Where are you going to do that? At the pharmacy just around the corner. It's 20 euros, takes 20 minutes. You go there, get swabbed, come back in half an hour, you got your papers. Next day you go out to the airport and they wave you right through, almost like normal times. Yeah, and I think what really struck me immediately when I got to Europe was just how comfortable I felt there. And it's because uh, the word that kept coming to mind is Europeans are handling the pandemic in a way that's very pragmatic. They understand there's a risk. They accept the fact that there's a risk. They modify their behavior in reasonable ways to minimize the risk. And then they get on with living and they don't worry about it quite so much and they don't stress about it so much. And there's not this sort of vaccine resistance to the degree we have here, or the masking resistance to the degree we have here. Europeans just figure there's things that we have to do to get through this and we're going to do them. You're saying they're practical, they're pragmatic. Does that mean they're less emotional and less political about it? It felt to me less emotionally charged. It was just, like you said, practical. It's like, you know what? I'm getting on the bus. I'm going to put my mask on. I'm getting off the bus. Yeah. So I'm going to take the mask off. Yeah. Um, I had a wonderful experience. One of my favorite places that I went was a countryside B&B in Tuscany. And the, the owner is somebody who has American guests coming through all the time. Most of her business is Americans. And she had a lot of bookings for the fall. And they were all starting to cancel because they'd seen the same headlines I did, which is that there was going to be a, quote, travel ban on Americans. And she was very frustrated, and she put it simply. She said, you know, you test in, you test out. It's simple. Yeah. Uh, you take a test to go to Italy, you take a test to go home. And I think for Americans I talked to, they would say, I'm not going to take a test. Why would, I, why would I go somewhere where I have to take a test? Well, if that's your choice, that's fine. But um, You know, there's, you know. there's Americans who have stopped traveling after 9-11 because you, you have to go through TSA. And they say, I'm not going to put up with all this headaches. Well, okay, you won't travel. We're used to it, and it's quite routine now, and we travel on. You know, this emotions and this politicizing of these hoops we got to go through to travel these days, it is interesting. When I was in France, there was just a routineness to it. There was a respect. There was a social attitude, like we're all in this together. You know, Europeans are not always eager to follow the laws. I know in Italy, for years, Italians would not wear a helmet on their motorcycles, even when it was required, because they didn't want it to mess up their, their look. They wanted their hair blowing in the wind. Okay, they have, you know, passions about that. Well, I didn't notice any of that anti-law kind of sentiment where I was traveling. Same for me. I was really struck. And it's interesting to compare because I started my trip in Italy and I ended in Germany. And when you want to think about Italian stereotypes, those are two very different places. You've got yeah. the Italians who refuse to follow rules and the Germans who love to follow rules, <laughs> according to old stereotypes. But in fact, I found both places took the rules very seriously. And in both places, I was really kind of inspired by seeing, every, again, everyone just yeah. puts the mask on when they go in a store. They take it off when they come out. There's no fuss, no muss. The no. other thing that I was really pleased by and that gave me a lot of comfort in a lot of countries, including Italy, for example, if you want to go inside to sit at a restaurant or if you want to go to a museum, you have to show proof of vaccination. Right. Uh, and I know there's a lot of controversy in the U.S. about whether that's a reasonable expectation. And in a society like Italy, which is not a society that loves to follow the rules uh, mm -hmm. by the letter of the law, they're very accepting of that. And it was when I sat down at a restaurant, they said, can I please see your vaccination card? That's it. We're comparing notes right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Cameron Hewitt. He's the senior content manager at Rick Steves Europe and co-authors several of my guidebooks. In the last few weeks, Cameron and I each took our own first trips to Europe since the pandemic started. You can follow Cameron's blog entries about his observations in Europe. It's on our website at ricksteves.com. So, Cameron, you mentioned the vaccine, well, what a lot of people consider the vaccine passport, you know. I just thought, when I left home, okay, 
we've got to have proof of our vaccination. And for an American, that's a CDC card that's filled out properly. Uh, In Europe, they've got their own QR codes and their own green cards or whatever. And we tried to get that. In France, they've got a famous QR code, but they were just overwhelmed. We'd signed up for it. It was for local people. They said they were going to make concessions for tourists visiting. None of the tourists got their QR codes. So we're all over there. What are we going to do? Well, they got people that want to go to the airport. They got people that want to go to the hotel and the restaurant and get on the train. You use your American card, and it worked. I had my... Uh, CDC card in my passport, and whenever I pulled out my passport, part of that passport now is my CDC card. And people act like this is a big deal, but I remember when I was a kid, we had the Yellow International Certificate of Vaccination. That's what we called it. I couldn't go to Greece. I couldn't go to Portugal. I couldn't go to lots of places without showing that I had my shot. And that was essentially uh, a vaccination passport. It, It was the companion of my passport. A couple of years ago, I went to Ethiopia. I had to get a yellow international certificate of vaccination to show I had the shot necessary for Ethiopia. Today, it's just the same thing. But you don't use that yellow card. You use your CDC card. Yes, and that was exactly my experience, too. Um, And I guess that that's something I would want to say. If someone's thinking about traveling right now, you do have to be flexible. You have to be ready for things to be a little bit different. You are going to have to show your card um, before you go into a restaurant, for example, in some places. Uh, And you might worry about, can I get the European version of this, which is called a green pass? It's a smartphone QR code. Like you, Rick, I never got those. I I was in countries where you weren't even able to get them as an American. So on the one hand, you have to be ready for sort of some new red tape and some new hassles. On the other hand, people just figure it out. Everywhere I went, I just showed them my CDC vaccination card. A few times people hadn't seen it before and they had to kind of look at it carefully. Um, and they looked at it and said, yeah, this looks this looks valid to me. This is all new. It's a moving target. Europeans are getting used to this new system. But at the end of the day, they're figuring it out. Yeah, I, people I, told me you can't get into the Louvre. And I thought that's, that's baloney. There's going to be a way to get into the Louvre. If you are vaccinated, they're not going to look at your CDC card and say, no, that was my experience. And I mean, I, I thought Europe is pretty pragmatic about it. And I was worried about crossing borders, for example. That's right. another thing that I heard about, especially last year, some of the borders right. were, were closing. I never had any problems crossing borders. I crossed in cars, uh, on a train. I crossed by plane. Occasionally, I had to show my vaccination card. On the land borders, no one ever even looked at my passport. So it was pretty smooth. And Europe is figuring this out. And they're, like I said, mm-hmm. they're kind of moving forward and, and getting on with life. You know, who, who should go during this time? I think just you just said it. I think first you should be vaccinated. Um, technically, you're not required to be vaccinated in certain countries, but it's very clear that Europe does not want unvaccinated Americans. I would not feel comfortable being there if I wasn't. Um, yeah, you can test maybe and get out of some of the requirements. Don't go if you're not vaccinated. It's just it's just not a good idea. They want people who are flexible, who are willing to flex with the fact that, for example, when I went to Italy, uh, I flew into Venice. I did not need a test. Two days later, Italy said, well, from now on, you need a test. I just got under the wire on that. Those regulations are going to be changing, so you have to be flexible, you have to do homework, kind of know what's coming. And also, I do think there's still a pandemic going on. So if you're immunocompromised, Mm -hmm. if you have fragile health, if you're really so worried about catching this uh, breakthrough infection, for example, that you wouldn't enjoy your trip, hold off for a while. I don't think it's necessarily time for everyone to go to Europe. Um, But I'm somebody who's a pretty hardy independent traveler who is just chomping at the bit to get over there. And I decided this fall was the time to go. And in retrospect, it was the perfect time to go. And I'm, I'm glad I did. We're talking with Cameron Hewitt. He's a travel writer, works with me. He's just back from Europe, visiting many of his favorite countries. Cameron, you're really uh, up on the news and so on. And I appreciate your take on things. Just in a nutshell, how's Europe doing with the pandemic? It seems to me they got off on a very rocky start because it's a 
kind of a ungainly or whatever, just a, a, a EU is hard to coordinate. And then they realize it's tough on their economy if people can't travel and do their work and so on. And now they seem to have got their act together. But where are they at and, and what's the trajectory for those of us who are dreaming about going to Europe? Uh, great question. I mean, that's that's a big question going back to the very early days in northern Italy when the first cases were identified. Um, you know, it's been interesting to watch the U.S. and Europe handle this on a parallel track. One thing you said earlier that I think is true is it's become very politicized, things like wearing masks and getting vaccinations in the U.S. I don't see that quite to the same degree in Europe. There, are, I ran into a couple of anti-vaccine protests in Europe, um, but it, it's not something that you hear about to the degree that you do here. And I, I think the thing that underlies it all for me is this pragmatism. And I think starting especially this summer, they're just very practical about what are the things we need to do as a society to come together and to put our own personal opinions aside about certain things and agree we're going to do certain reasonable behaviors to ensure the safety of ourselves and each other and to allow our tourism industry to restart, which is a, a huge part of the European economy. The thing that uh, kept going through my mind as I was traveling through Europe is being there this fall, fall of 2021, really felt like a test run for 2022. It's not at full capacity. It's not uncrowded. Places aren't empty, but they're not as busy as they would have been in 2019. But there's enough of us there. There's a critical mass of, you know, adventurous Americans and European tourists from other parts of Europe who are figuring out the system, figuring out this thing about green cards and vaccination proof and where you wear, where you wear masks and what kinds of masks you wear. And I got the sense that Europe is sort of ironing out the wrinkles for 2022 travels. So this fall is sort of the test run. And, and when it comes to masks, that. you should get a, a serious mask. Yeah. And that was something I noticed. Um, Americans are tending to wear a lot of cloth masks. Um, mm -hmm. And in Europe, that's very uncommon. I was surprised how few cloth masks I saw right. uh, in Italy, for example. And then when I got to Germany, actually, they're very specific. Legally, you have to wear what they call an FFP2 mask, which is basically a KN95 or an N95, essentially like a medical grade mask uh -huh. uh, or a surgical mask. So when you got on a subway in Berlin, there yeah. was a sign that didn't just say wear any old mask. It, you have to wear a medical grade mask of a certain type. The other thing that I think Europe is doing extremely well that we're not doing particularly well is free or affordable, easy, quick access to testing. Mm -hmm. Both the PCR, which is the one that takes longer that you send to a lab, and the rapid antigen tests. You know, I think Americans don't, a lot of Americans don't know anything about testing. They just know if you feel sick, you should get tested. Europeans, I've I was surprised. They know the different kinds of testing and how they work. Um, they've been educated really well by their society. And a lot of governments are paying for free tests to people. And this is really great, especially for like people with kids who aren't vaccinated yet. I have a friend oh, yeah. in Prague uh, and she said, when my kids want to go to the movies or when they want to go to a swimming pool, they're not vaccinated yet. We stop by the testing center. We get a mm -hmm. free fast antigen test to make sure they're negative mm -hmm. and then they can get on with their fun with their friends and not have to worry about it. By the way, we're talking rich country to rich country. I think we should remind people half of the world is not even they're not privileged enough to be able to do this. Half the world, there is no tourism because they don't have their shots yet because it's it's a rich man's game right now. So we're going from the United States to Europe, which is this kind of um, privileged bubble. And I think both you and I are enthusiastic about the experience we had. I'd go again in a heartbeat. Cameron, just briefly, do you think there's much value in thinking about conditions in different countries within the EU or do you think of it in one fell swoop, it's okay or it's not okay? I do think it's different country to country. I think there's some stuff that's universal, but I was I noticed subtle differences when I went from country to country. And also different countries have different specific rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in Germany, you have to have a very specific kind of mask if you're going to be in public transportation. That's not the case. They're a little looser in Prague, for example. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Cameron Hewitt, who's one of my co-authors and writes great travel guidebooks. And Cameron has just got back from Europe, dealing with the responsibilities and the hurdles that come with traveling during this pandemic. You know, I'm so thankful, Cameron, that we had a chance to get over there and just rekindle our love for Europe and, and just magic moments. Uh, and it just, it's, it's really gratifying to being able to have those moments. I was hiking around uh, Mont Blanc. It took six days. It was a wonderful experience. And for me, being up in the mountain was like a vacation from COVID. And when we finished the loop, my friends and I went to a wonderful restaurant in Chamonix, and I had the joy of introducing escargot to my skeptical and a little bit frightened friends. And they not only had half a dozen, we had a dozen snails. And we celebrated the fact that we could hike around the mountain and we could gather together and enjoy French cuisine. Then we took the train, the bullet train, into Paris. And for a finale, my partner and I got in an Uber and we explained to the Uber driver we wanted to lace together all the famous floodlit spots We wanted to stop at each spot, get out, take a selfie, do a little happy dance, and get back into the Uber and go to the next spot. And then the next spot. And each time, get out, take a selfie with that floodlit monument, do a little happy jig, and get back into the Uber. And we did that for an hour and a half, making friends with the Uber driver, getting done, shaking his hand, and thinking this is getting back to normalcy. Cameron, what's a moment you had in your travels where you just really felt, yes, we're traveling again. Uh, I had a really wonderful day with Tina Hedi, who's one of our friends in Slovenia. Uh, my wife was with me for that part of the trip. And Tina, we've been dying to see her. We're good friends. We haven't seen her in two years. And she said, the next time you come to Slovenia, I want to take you to one of my favorite places. And so she picked us up at our apartment, and we hopped in her car, and she, for the whole day, she took us to this gorgeous valley, remote valley in Slovenia. I've been to Slovenia 25 times. I've never been to this particular place. And she took us to these little hill towns and villages and wineries um, in the middle of nowhere, very socially distanced and not necessarily on purpose. It just worked out that way. And we just had a wonderful time. She was so excited, so excited to be able to share her love for her home country with people from another place again. And she was so excited to be with friends again. And we were just so happy to be back in Europe. And it was just a magical experience. You know, Cameron, that joy we get these days, like the joy you and I just had walking into this recording studio, because we haven't seen each other in the flesh for a long, long time. That's the same between countries. And when Americans go to a faraway land, the people in that faraway land are filled with joy to see people venturing into their country again, as if we are free to travel. Thank you, Cameron, for joining us. It's so good to have been in Europe come home and have some practical ideas to share with other travelers who are just dreaming of getting back on the road. Thank you for having me. It's it's great to be back, too. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.